morning. Today's scripture reading is from John 10, 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have another sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, I got, oh, we're going to move this up. I got three things I want to say, like, right from the jump. Jacqueline, thank you so much for reading. That was kind of a long passage. Uh, good morning, everyone. Second thing. And the third thing is, uh, you probably realize by now, I'm not Jared. Um, I'm not Mike. And I'm not Richard. Um, I'm none of those three. Uh, but um, my name is Brock Cookman. Uh, I am the campus director for Campus Outreach at Eastern Illinois University, which is the college ministry of this church. I'm from Morris, Illinois, which is about two hours and 45 minutes, almost directly north of here. I honestly looked it up on the latitude and longitude map as I was preparing this, I was curious. Uh, and then it's an hour southwest of Chicago, but don't get it twisted, it's not a suburb. I'm very pa passionate about that. When people try to, when people try to loop Morris into a suburb, it's, it's not it, I can explain why later, but we don't have enough time for that. Um, but I came to Charleston in fall of 2014 to enroll at Eastern Illinois um, University to study elementary education, like. I want to become a teacher, uh, teach in inner city somewhere, um, and but that's changed. Uh, God got a hold of me in college and changed my heart, saved me, and changed my plans. And by the time I was graduating in spring of 2018, um, I had accepted a job with Campus Outreach to help share the gospel um, on the college campuses in Central Illinois. Um, 
specifically for me here at EIU, and I've been doing that for the last five years. So I've spent nine years of my life in Charleston, Illinois, um, and I'm excited to be here. But before uh, we get into this, I'll go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for today, um, for waking us up and bringing us here, and um, yeah, we just ask that you would be present, Father, that this would be your word. Um, Father, we ask that we would hear your voice as Jesus talks about in this. Uh, we ask for attentive ears, we attentive minds, hearts, souls. Uh, Lord, ask that you would block out any distractions, um, and that we just really would hear your word. Proud in Jesus' name, amen. This is not, I didn't plan to say this, but I know it's going to happen. I, should, I helped Jared pick the songs, um, and I shouldn't have picked songs that would kind of got me a little emotional. So we'll, we'll see. That was a bad, bad move. I was, as we were singing that song, I was like, oh, we're screwed. But um, I should be good. But so I want to start with telling us a little story. Um, and what's funny is I didn't think my parents were going to be here when I was telling this story. So, uh, but now they're here. So, uh, but it's a Mother's Day story, which they probably know exactly where I'm going about this, is when I was like, when, when I was like 10 years old, so I have a brother and a sister. My sister's like three years younger than me. Riley's like one year younger than me, so Allison's my sister's name. Some of you might know her. Uh, she went here. And so it's Mother's Day. I think I'm about 10, and for that day, my mom, I think, was the one that came up with ideas. Like, let's get Wendy's, and let's go down to the river. Morris is on the Illinois River, so it's a river town. So we got our Wendy's, went to the river, sat at a picnic table, um, and started eating our food, and we ate it. And afterwards, like, us as the kids were like, hey, can we go – uh, skip some rocks at the like just down the shore. My parents are like, yeah, that's great. It's just a little bit of ways um, down. So Allison and I go down. Riley goes down. Allison and I are right next to each other. And Al Riley's like a little bit just somewhere else doing his own thing. Classic Riley, if you know him. Um, but so we're just skipping rocks, like trying to throw them, find the best ones, throw them, throw them, throw them. And after a little while, I decide like, okay, like I'm gonna start throwing it at this big rock, kind of this boulder in the water. So I'm throwing it, trying to hit it. Um, and I say to Allison, I was like, try to hit the rock. I do, that's what I say, try to hit the rock. So she picks up a rock and throws it, um, but she doesn't throw it at the rock in the water. She throws it at another like big boulder that's on land, like another big rock down that way. Um, and that's, that's like fine and all, um, except Riley's standing right in front of this rock. Like turn, turn, this, turn this way, um, his back towards this plane of these rocks. And I just remember this so vividly, like everything goes into slow motion in this moment. Like you just see the rock going in the air. And it's in all, my only hope at this moment is Allison doesn't have enough arm strength to make it there or, or enough accuracy. Um, but those hopes were squashed real quick because that rock cracks Riley in the back of his head and he's crumpled, just goes straight to the ground. And everything speeds right back up real quick. Um, my parents are running down like, Riley, Riley, Riley. And immediately my response says, I turn to Alice and I start berating her. I'm like, I'm like, you're so dumb. Like, what were you doing? Like, why are you throwing it at that? And she's crying. I'm crying. And she's like, you told me to throw it at the rock. And I was like, I said, I was like, the rock. Well, she, I was like, I meant the rock in the water. And she's like, well, you weren't clear. You didn't say that. And I'm like, I'm like, I thought it was clear. Like, that's the rock I was throwing it at um, and all these things. And we get Riley, we take him to the hospital, his head's bleeding, get some staples. Um, and to this day, he has a notch in the back of his head where his hair won't grow. Um, but it's still a debate in our family. Every Mother's Day, we talk about it. And if I was clear enough, uh, I thought it was clear. Um, but Allison doesn't. So, but, but you're like, why am I probably telling this story? And it, it may be a little bit of a stretch, but in this story, there's an example of like, in that moment, like, I wasn't worthy to follow. Like, I wasn't a good example to follow. Like, I wasn't clear. Like, I wasn't leading Allison in a clear way. Like, I should have said, throw it at that exact rock in the water. 
or just like, I, who knows what my intentions were in those things. Um, and that's kind of like what we're dealing with a little bit in this text today is that there's going to be some questions that are asking like, like, is Jesus good to follow? Like, is he worthy of following? Like, does he have my best intentions in mind? Um, and those are all questions that we all need to have an answer to um, in life is if Jesus is good. Um, so my goal for today is to show us through this text um, what Jesus is actually saying, that he is good, that he is worthy of being followed, that he has our best intentions in mind. And that's my hope. Um, I obviously can't do it better than Jesus can, so I hope you guys give me a little grace. Um, but this text can kind of be broken up into three sections, three main ones and a little, little fourth. Um, but some are cleaner, clearer, and easier to see than others. Uh, and I actually came up with some really clever titles. Um, I spent a lot of my time um, thinking of these titles. And you'll figure out what I, whether I'm being serious or not in a second. Um, but the first section we can take is verses one through six. And this really clever title can be, Jesus Gives a Figure of Speech. Spent all day thinking about that one. It, and then the second one, actually I outdid myself on the second one, verses 7 through 10. It's titled, The Door. Just the door. Like we're in Menards. Just go into the door section of Menards. And the third section is verses 11 through 18. And it's just called, The Shepherd. So, spent a lot of my time thinking of those titles. Uh, and then the last section is just 19 through 21. It's kind of like a response, and we'll spend a little time in there. But we'll go ahead and jump into this first section, verses 1 through 6, Jesus' figure of speech. So it's important to know the context of these verses. Like what's just happened in chapter 9 is Jesus has healed a man that was born blind. Uh, and then there's an uproar over it. The Pharisees like, are like, who are you? What have you done? Jesus and them have a little interaction. And then that's the end of that situation. And they say this, though. They say, they ask Jesus. They said, if you were, they said this to themselves. Pharisees asked Jesus this, and then Jesus says, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And that's how chapter 10 ends, and then we have our passage in chapter 10. But don't let the chapter break fool you. This is all one interaction. So Jesus goes directly from that statement into telling them this story. So what's happening is Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and there's all these people around. Probably the blind man, too, had just been healed. So this is 9 and 10 just run straight together. The chapters, don't let them fool you. And what Jesus is basically saying to them with this figure of speech is to the Pharisees, talking to them, if you want to know whether you're blind or not, here's a picture I'm going to paint you, and let's see whether you can see or not what I'm saying. And Jesus just simply states the figure of speech and does not explain it right away, which is what we can see in verse 6 and 7. Um, and he leaves it up to the Pharisees to see if they understand but they do not. So I'll go ahead and read this figure of speech in full again. Hopefully this works. Um, but it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in and by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Is that me, John? Let's go. Um, but he who enters by the door is a sheep, shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee for him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So Jesus in this part makes no statement on who is who um, but in this picture, but it should be clear for us to see that Jesus is saying the Pharisees are like the man who is the thief and the robber, that they try to become leaders of the sheep by illegitimate ways. But Jesus actually says, right, the true sheep will not follow him, follow them. 
And Jesus also does not explicitly say that he's the shepherd here, but we can be sure that, that Jesus is identifying with the shepherd, as we'll see later in our passage. And one other thing that's important to note is that the sheep are a reference to people, including us, all people including us, and that there are two types of sheep. The one are those who hear his voice and know it and follow him, and the others are those who don't. So there's two types of sheep. And verse 6 makes it clear that the Pharisees do not understand what Jesus is saying when it says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Jesus in this section has shown the Pharisees, the people who are listening, and now us, what he was doing back then and is still doing now, which is he is gathering of people to himself, a flock to himself, which is what he says in verse 3. And then he leads us into the next section where Jesus is basically saying, like, silly Pharisees, since you didn't see or understand what I'm saying, let me make it even more clear to you. Just let me make it more clear to you. But notice this, that the gospel writer John wrote this down for our benefit as well. So let's not be quick to think that the Pharisees were the only ones who didn't understand what Jesus was saying. That we also have the opportunity to hear Jesus' explanation like all the others that were around in that moment. So we can move in um, to this next section, the door section. And I think it would just be good for us to read 7 through 10 as a whole, and, I'll, and then I'll walk through it. So verses set, verse 7 starts. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. If I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus makes a bold claim right off the get-go in the section. He says, remember the door of the sheepfold that I was talking about? Like, yeah, that's me. I'm the door of the sheep. He's essentially saying the same thing that he's going to say later in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is saying that he is the sole means of entering into the people of God, that there is no other way to get to God the Father. The only way is through him. And he goes even saying, he says that those who enter by another way and tell others that there is another way to enter the people of God, they're actually thieves and robbers. They are out for their own good and not for the good of the sheep. Specifically in this context, Jesus is talking about any of the religious leaders that have came before him who have either claimed to be the Messiah, have rejected him as the Messiah, um, and have only looked out for themselves and not the people of God, as you can see, honestly, throughout the whole Old Testament. And then he is saying to the Pharisees right now, that's you. You are the thieves. You are the robbers. That they are pretenders who promise freedom. This makes me think of what Peter says in 2 Peter 2.19 when talking about false prophets and teachers, he says, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption. Peter and Jesus and, and Paul, in many of his writings, are saying that anyone who says there's another way to God, besides through Jesus Christ, are thieves and robbers. They bluntly rebuke false teachers, and we should be aware of this. But one encouraging thing to note, is if you can see it in verse eight, is how the sheep respond. Jesus says that the sheep did not listen to the thieves and robbers. Those that know him did not listen, meaning that the true sheep will not follow a false teacher or believe a false gospel because they know the true gospel. They know that Jesus is the door to the sheepfold. Jesus is the way to God. And he makes this clear in verse 9, right? When he says, 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus promises salvation for those who trust him to be the path to God. And not only does he promise safety, but he promises life as well, as we see this in verse 10, when it says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus makes it plain and simple. The thief comes only to do three things, steal and kill and destroy. Destroy. It's that simple. In the context of the passage, Jesus is saying the Pharisees are the thief. They are out for their own benefit and not the benefit of the sheep. Applied to the today, Jesus is saying that anyone preaching and teaching a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the thief. They're the robber. They're the ones only out to steal, kill, and destroy. And false gospels and false teachers actually bring death and destruction to the soul. But let's look and see what Jesus brings, and he says in this verse. So what does he bring? What does he provide? What does he come for? He said that he came that the sheep may have life and have it abundantly. That Jesus actually brings life, and he's making the claim that true life is only found in him. He's saying that true satisfaction is only found in him. What is in view here when Jesus mentions or says abundant life isn't merely just eternal life in terms of like there'll be all this life to live at some point, which it is talking about that. That's included in it. But what Jesus is saying here is what's in view is that a rich, joyful, meaningful, purposeful, satisfying life can be lived right now in the present. That life at its best is what Jesus has in view. Jesus is saying he is the door to the satisfaction that our soul deeply desires. And, I don't know, that sounds pretty good to me. Like, I don't know, I'm kind of answering my own question, I think. So, but, so it seems like someone worth following, but there's more. We can keep going through this. And I heard it said one time, it's honestly, heard it recently, it's a good quote I'm going to share with you guys, is God is not in heaven fearful that you're going to find life somewhere apart from him. He's waiting for you to discover that is only found in him. I'm going to run that back. God is not in heaven fearful that you're going to find life somewhere apart from him. He's waiting for you to discover that it is only found in him. Basically what's it saying is like God is, God's not afraid that you're going to find something that will satisfy your soul apart from him. He's not sitting there worrying and wondering like, Oh, gosh, are they going to discover it? Like, oh, I didn't know that could do it, or I didn't know this could do it. Like, is it going to happen? Like, they're going to have satisfaction apart from me. Like, no, like, God knows it won't happen. He knows there's nothing else that will satisfy your soul because he's the one that created it. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will, nothing apart from Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. That's what he's saying. So with this is like you can go run you can go chase you can go do and go try to do anything that you think will satisfy your soul satisfy that longing satisfy that just gnawing that there's something more it'll never satisfy it won't do it and christ makes it clear that only he can and he's telling you right now he's saying he's it he's saying you he's the satisfaction your soul's been looking for he's saying he's the door to the father he's the door to life He's saying any other way won't do it. It won't work. And then this begs the question, to ask, ask the question, how is Jesus able to provide us with abundant life? Luckily, he answers it in this next section, verses 11 through 18. 
as we go into the shepherd section. Let's take a look at verse 11. Jesus makes another, oh, thing too close. Jesus makes another bold claim when he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, I'll go even further. Not only am I the door to the, for the sheep, but I'm the shepherd. It's one of those moments where you can say, get you a man who can do both. Jesus can do both things. And he's not just any shepherd, but he's the good shepherd. He doesn't just claim to be a shepherd. He claims to be the good shepherd. And he also tells us what the good shepherd does, that he lays down his life for the sheep. The la this laying down his life is precisely what qualifies Jesus to be the good shepherd. And I'll come back to that point, honestly, really quickly, um, because Jesus himself comes back to it. But we'll move on for right now, and it'll be like one sentence. But I'm not really going to sit, sit on verses 12 and 13, but you can just kind of see that they are a contrast to Jesus, kind of putting up a compare and contrast. Like Jesus is saying he's this, look at these hard hands, look at how they treat the sheep. Um, and we'll just move into 14 and 15, where again, Jesus comes back and says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus repeating, I am the good shepherd, should get our attention immediately, because he just said it in verse 11. If he is repeating something, then obviously he wants us to have our attention. He wants us to be like, hey, listen, I'm saying it again. Pay attention here. Like my mom would say those things all the time. Growing up, she'd repeat stuff to me, and now Lauren. But... So, but it also should draw our attention to whatever is near it as well, and especially because Jesus ends this couplet of verses with saying something again. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. So he starts it with, I'm the good shepherd, and ends it again with, I lay down my life for the sheep. So it's ever in the middle, should bring our, we should have attention to it as well. And Jesus is showing us who he is as the good shepherd, what he does as the, as the good shepherd, and how he becomes the good shepherd in these verses. He says he lays down his life for the sheep, which I said earlier qualifies him to be the good shepherd. That actually in the face of danger, Jesus does not abandon the sheep. He actually dies for them. Jesus protects his sheep, his people, instead of leaving them exposed like the hired hands in verses 12 through 13, where it said the hired hands desert the sheep in the face of danger. They run. They only look out for their own good. But by Jesus' death, he actually draws the sheep to himself. Jesus, as the shepherd, does not merely die for his sheep as an example to show, like, just look how much I love you, or just this. He does not just do it merely as an example. But actually, he dies because the, the sheep, us, are in mortal danger. And the shepherd gives up his life so that the sheep are saved. And then Jesus says this, right? He says, he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. And this shepherd and sheep knowledge mirror the relationship of the father and son, right? As he says, just as the father knows me and I know the father. This is crucial to see. That biblical Christianity is nothing less than knowing God and being known by him. We can take heart in the fact that Jesus does not demand his followers to be just following him without knowing them. He, Jesus is not some dictator. He is not just some tyrant ruler. He is not someone who does not know his sheep. Because he's intimately saying, like, I know them, and they know me. It is actually the contrary. Jesus knows his people intimately, personally, and experientially. 
It says he knows them by name, and they listen to his voice. And they will follow no one else. Jesus is saying that no one will take them from him, that they are his. Not now, not ever, never. No one will take them from him. He says they're his sheep. And this is only possible because he laid down his life for them that they might live. And I love this, I love this next verse. Hopefully I can make it through it. Um, but John 10, 16, it says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. For there will be one flock, one shepherd. Specifically in this context, Jesus is speaking about the Gentiles, and he is saying that salvation is not only for the Jews. At this moment, a lot of people think, okay, salvation is just for the Jews. It's like, no, like it's not only for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. It's for the scattered children of God. When applied to today, this means that Jesus, when applied to this, means that there are people around the world, near and far, who will respond to the gospel by believing it. And how do we know this? Is Jesus says it right here. He says, they will listen to his voice, and he must bring them in. If you ever needed a confidence boost for evangelism or sharing your faith, then it's right here. Jesus is saying that we can take the gospels, the gospel to the hardest places on earth, and people will hear it and respond in faith. And this should set a fire in us, and to just realize that it's not about you, it's not about whether you know all the apologetic arguments, or if you have enough confidence, or if you're worried about what people are going to say about you. Um, it's about letting the shepherd speak through you, and he says his sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. They listen to it. Jesus guarantees it. He purchased these people by his bloody death on the cross, and he did so that there will be one flock with Christ, a shepherd king, leading his sheep. It's a beautiful picture. And then pay attention to these next verses really closely. So I'm about to go to these next ones. Just pay attention to them, because if you haven't been listening this whole sermon, which is understandable, um, you can salvage it right here. I'm about to give you guys the answer. About, so just don't miss it. I'm going to clap. Don't miss it right here. Pay attention. Like, here's the answer that we're seeking at the beginning of the sermon. Like, is Jesus good? Is he worthy of being followed? How do I know that Jesus has my best interests in mind? So again, don't miss it. So it says, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is important to understand that Jesus' death was no accident. It was not a plan B. It was not a response to anything that has happened. Jesus' death was intentional, and it was not circumstantial. See that clearly in verses 11, 15, 17, and 18 in this passage. And Jesus says no one takes his life from him, that no one took Jesus' life from him, that he laid it down of his own accord, that Jesus willingly, gladly, and purposely dies for the sheep. He dies in order to rise so that others may live. Jesus died so that he could take his life up again. Jesus' death was with the resurrection in view that he did not just die merely to die, but he died knowing that he will take it up, that others may live and bring abundant life to those that would follow him. What did Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish? Why did he do this? 
we can take a look at 1 Peter 2, 24 through 25 for some more support. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That Jesus is saying that, that Peter is saying that Jesus took our sin upon himself and bore it in his body, that he took all our misdeeds, all our wrongdoings, all our rebellion against the creator of the universe and died the death that we deserve. These are sin put a separation in between us and God. But Jesus took our sins upon himself that it says we might die to sin, no longer living like sin is our ruler and like sin is our master and like sin is the one that calls the shots and that we would live to righteousness following him as he leads us in paths of righteousness. And it says, by his wounds we have been healed. And then look at this, right? It says, and we are once straying like sheep. But Jesus' death, by his death, he brings his people back to himself and returns us back under his care. This is the good shepherd. This is why Jesus is good. This is why he is worthy of being followed. This is how we know that he has our best interests in mind, is that Jesus went to the fullest extent. He went to the extreme to save your soul. And because of this, we can trust him and follow him. And now it comes to the response at the end, which we won't send on too much. But so Jesus finishes talking, and John records the response of those around who are paying attention. And they're asking the same question that I kind of proposed at the beginning, but in a little bit of a different way. So it says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he is the demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And what they're asking is, is they're asking, is Jesus really who he says he is? Is he really the door to the sheep? Is he really the good shepherd that he's claiming to be? Is he really the one that has abundant life for us? And that, those are the questions that we're asking. And those are the questions that these people are asking in this moment. And just how would you respond to that? How would you answer that? I'm bringing it to a wrap here sometime soon. Um, but honestly, I might get booed off stage for this next thing that I'm about to say. Um, but something occurred on November 2nd, uh, 2016, uh, November 3rd, if we're getting really technical. Uh, that people had been waiting to happen for a very long time. So give me, give me one sec. <laughs> the Chicago Cubs snapped a 108-year World Series drought. When this happened, Cubs fans went crazy in the city and around the world. Personally, I walked around EIU's campus with a group of people waving the white W flag, singing Go Cubs Go for around an hour. Um, but what, what you would start to see is a multitude of people, you probably saw it on TV and everywhere, of people flooding the streets of Chicago, all wearing the same jersey, celebrating the outcome of a game that none of them played in. all different types of people from all over the city, from different neighborhoods, 
I'm not getting emotional about the Cubs. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting emotional about what this means. So hold on, one second, one second, one second. Uh, come on. Uh, but is, is that all different people from all across the city I did cry when they won, though. I did. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Um, this line isn't even a hard one to say. I don't know why I can't say it. Uh, but they came together to rejoice in a victory that none of them contributed to. They had eagerly been waiting the day that they, that they could see this happen. That, oh gosh. That they could say, finally, it's been done. It's getting hot up here because I'm in this jersey. Uh, just. And, and like, this is true for the people of God. That, all, that one day, we'll all be wearing the same jersey. Those of you who have heard me speak before, you know this happens often. Um, but celebrating someone else's victory. The victory of the Good Shepherd. <laughs> that he has laid down his life for the sheep and has picked it up again, defeating sin and defeating death. And what he is doing now is bringing people near and far, from Charleston, Illinois, to Tokyo, Japan, from around the world, to himself. Because the Lord Jesus Christ says there are other sheep who are not of this fold, and he must bring them all in also. He says there will be one flock. That will all together unite, praising the victory, celebrating the victory of what none of us contributed to. skip some stuff because I'm not going to make it through it. Uh, but that's the good shepherd. This is the one who lays down his life for the sheep that they may have life. Is what he says. And Jesus says it's only found in him. You coming to me with some tissue, Brent? I'll take it. Uh-oh. Uh, but at the, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep that they would know him, follow him, and love them. Love him. And Jesus says abundant life is only found in him. But again, how can we know that Jesus is worthy of being followed? How can we know that he's good? It says because he laid down his life for us, that Christ died while we were still sinners. The righteous for the unrighteous. The innocent for the guilty. The perfect son for the rebellious children. And this is the Jesus that calls himself the good shepherd, who calls out his sheep, and leads them out to green pastures to live abundantly. And then the question is, how can, how can you know if you've responded to this? I'm going to just keep using this. 
um, if you've responded to this call of the good shepherd and following him, is like Luke, Jesus gives this answer in Luke 9 when he says, if anyone were to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says to follow him means to lose your life if you know it. That coming to follow Jesus isn't just an addition to your life. It's a total upheaval of the way you live. It's not just holding on to one thing, trying to grab the other. This isn't even the emotional part. I just, I don't know, I'm done. Uh, but, uh, but this is the question that you have to ask is, have I tried holding on to something and adding Jesus in? Or have I, like Jesus says, Jesus explains, lost my life, forsaking putting any trust in anything except him alone, that I might find it in Christ. And you have that opportunity right now. So if you're here and you've never responded to the Good Shepherd's call, he's calling you to do so right now. He says, come now and you will find rest for your soul. Well, a couple sentences we get through and we're good. Um, but if you're here and you have been following the Good Shepherd, then let us look to Hebrews 12 and, lay, and where it says, let us lay aside every weight and sin that, cling, sing, that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross on our behalf. Now I can go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for the opportunity that we get to praise you and be with you and know you. And God, I pray that if we don't know you, if we haven't followed you, that you would move in us bring us to you as you say your sheep follow you they know your voice you know them by name um, so pray for the rest of the service lord is that we can glorify you and worship you pray all this in jesus name amen